For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi. Welcome to another edition of Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinet. I'll be your host for this podcast that covers chapters 15 through 19 of the book of Revelation as part of the Come Follow Me curriculum. This podcast is a little bit different because it doesn't follow the schedule actually published by the church. Um, technically speaking, there is no Come Follow Me lesson for December 24th, which is uh, the uh, Christmas Eve holiday, of course. Um, nevertheless, I've uh, gone ahead and uh, prepared this podcast with a shorter series of chapters that need to be covered. So uh, just consider this a, a bonus podcast. And uh, by the end of next week, as we come to the end of the year, uh, we'll be all caught up with uh, all the remaining chapters. So to give some sense of where we're at in terms of the timing of these particular chapters, it's important to recall that in Revelation chapter 11, as we got toward the end of that chapter, a seventh angel blew his trumpet to introduce the third woe of the seventh seal. But at that time, very few details were given. Uh, and in those final verses of chapter 11, John basically introduced the concept of the third woe. It was then interrupted by the three flashback chapters in Revelation 12 through 14, which I covered last week. And now the chronological account resumes in Revelation 15, where we're going to get the details that John didn't give us uh, at the end of chapter 11. And so, as I told you when I did the podcast on uh, chapters 12 through 14 and the flashback information, if that flashback information in those three chapters didn't exist, chapter 15 would follow chronologically without interruption after the end of chapter 11. Uh, the last thing that happened as we came to the end of the second woe, you'll recall, was that we had this harvest of the mortal sons of perdition and the, that left telestial worthy people to be destroyed and burned during the third woe. And we were also told in chapter 11 that the third woe would come quickly to indicate again that there's no pause in John's chronological vision going from Revelation chapter 14 where the flashback ended, and now we resume the chronological account here in chapter 15. So that's kind of a little bit of the context of where we're beginning today as we start our discussion of Revelation chapter 15. Now, just a, a word of warning, uh, again, because of the volume of information contained in these four chapters, I'm going to have to kind of fly for the most part at about 30,000 feet, leaving out a lot of the details that we would otherwise get to and will get to eventually as I start my podcasts after the first of the year with specific verses in the book of Revelation. But for now, we begin in Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. And this is what that particular verse says. And I saw another sign in heaven, 
great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. So this is where we begin, and I'm going to break this verse down just to give you some contextual information. Uh, first of all, he starts out talking about another sign in heaven. This is kind of juxtaposed to the great sign in heaven that John saw at the start of Revelation chapter 12. And you remember that the sign that he saw at the beginning of Revelation chapter 12 was this vision of a woman representing the premortal church. And so now we went all the way from the premortal existence. We're now up to Revelation chapter 15, 1, and now he sees another sign in heaven. Again, giving us the idea that there is a correlation and connection between what John saw in Revelation chapter 12 and the events leading up to chapter 15 as we begin now with this other sign in heaven. Now, the distinction here is that this sign that John sees in heaven at the beginning of chapter 15 is actually a sign that can be seen on the earth. So we've left the heavenly scene and we're now on earth and on earth there is going to be this other sign in heaven that is great and marvelous just before the seven vile plagues begin and uh, get poured out. This essentially is referring to the grand sign of the Son of Man. And so to put that in context or to give you some cross-references, consider Joseph Smith Matthew chapter 1 verse 36 which states this, quote, And as I said before, <clears throat> after the tribulation of those days and the powers of heaven shall be shaken, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So again, what John was talking about at the beginning of chapter 15 with this other sign in heaven, great and marvelous, is the same sign that the Savior spoke of in Joseph Smith Matthew, which is Joseph Smith's translation of Matthew chapter 24. So that's essentially the tie-in. We're talking about the same thing. Similarly, if you go to the Doctrine and Covenants, section 88 verses 93 through 95, I want to add in some additional information that is provided in that particular section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And so you should have on your screen uh, the verses that I just identified. And I'm going to read those, but I'm going to kind of stop in it breaks in between uh, some of the content just to give you some context again and it starts out in verse 93 saying and immediately there shall appear a great sign in heaven once again that's the Joseph Smith Matthew 136 and that's also Revelation chapter 15 1 that's what these verses are talking about so it says and let me start again and immediately there shall appear a great sign in heaven, and all people shall see it together. And another angel shall sound his trump, saying, That great church, the mother of abominations that made all nations, drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, that persecuteth the saints of God, that shed their blood, she who sitteth upon many waters, break here for just a second, this is referring to what we're going to be talking about in a moment when we get to Revelation chapter 17. The woman 
who uh, sits upon many waters, is known as the great whore, and she represents or is a symbol for all of false religion upon the earth. So that's the correlation, once again, that we're getting with these verses. And then it continues and says, Behold, she is the tares of the earth. She is bound in bundles. And when we're talking here about the tares of the earth and being bound in bundles, we're now talking about the celestial worthy people that are going to be killed during the third woe. You'll recall in prior discussions, we learned that the sons of perdition, those who are mortal sons of perdition, who commit the unpardonable sin in mortality, they get destroyed by the end of the second woe. We're now in the context moving forward chronologically, both in the narrative and time-wise, we're moving into the third woe when the celestial people are going to be killed off, leaving only terrestrial and celestial worthy people living at the time of the second coming and going into the millennium. So in these verses in the Doctrine and Covenants where it talks about she being bound in bundles, um, we're talking now about celestial people who will meet their maker during the third woe. And then it says her bands, referring again to the, uh, the great whore of false religion, her bands are made strong. No man can loose them. Therefore, she is ready to be burned, and he shall sound his trump both long and loud, and all nations shall hear it. And there shall be silence in heaven for the space of half an hour, and immediately after shall the curtain of heaven be unfolded, as a scroll is unfolded after it is rolled up, and the face of the Lord shall be unveiled. Close quote. Now the the trump that we're talking about here that sounds, and then there's this silence in heaven. I've talked about that before in connection with the silence in heaven that John hears at the beginning of chapter 8 of the book of Revelation. So in Revelation 8.1, it talks about there also this silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. And again, the point that I made then and that I'll simply reiterate quickly is these are not the same periods of silence that lasted for a half an hour. At the beginning of chapter 8, that was before the seven trumpet angels even began to sound, before we ever started with a first woe, before we started with a second woe, and we're now coming into the third woe. All of that silence that John heard at the beginning of chapter 8 precedes this period of time where we now have a, a silence in heaven for the space of a half an hour, but this space of a half an hour is occurring at the beginning of the third woe. So they're separate in time, but have many similarities and purposes that I'm sure are served as I've discussed in prior uh, podcasts. So that just kind of gives you some idea of what's going on and the correlation between Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, where John sees this great sign in heaven that is the sign of the Son of Man, and it precedes the time when the face of the Lord shall be unveiled. So in Revel or in DNC 88:95, where the last thing it mentions is the face of the Lord being unveiled, that sign, this half an hour of silence, and these other things that he's that we're talking about in these verses with this great sign in heaven, they come immediately before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let's talk a little bit about 
what's going on at the time that these things are occurring. First of all, you have to recognize that uh, as this sign in heaven is given, the sign of the Son of Man, all things are at that time going to be in commotion. So we're going to have the physical commotion of the elements in the earth and the sky. We're going to have spiritual and emotional commotion in the hearts of all people. We're going to have commotion in, in the form of conflicts between worldly people and warring nations. Um, this is all something that is talked about in uh, the parable of the fig tree in Matthew chapter 24, where the summer, summer leaves mature quickly. And all of these things are, again, the time period in which we're talking about now. These signs that accompany or foreshadow the conditions during the great sign um, are kind of all-inclusive. And as I have mentioned in prior uh, podcasts, the nature of wickedness and evil on the earth, the types of warfare and the intensity in which everything is happening that we call generally, quote-unquote, commotion, um, these are all things that happen very, very quickly. And that is something that is characteristic of the third woe, where the series of vile plagues that we're going to be discussing in a moment come in such rapid fashion that everything is going on all at once. And so what, what we're going to see as we come into these last seven vile plagues is that they're going to occur very, very rapidly, some of them perhaps almost even simultaneous in their succession. So there's not going to be a long period of time. And, and so when we're talking now, as, as we come into this third woe, and the destruction of all celestial people, we've had the seven years of Armageddon during the second woe, and the and and John's warning that the third woe would come quickly. The time period now in which we're going to be talking about, I think, is going to be measured in days and perhaps even hours for some of the vile plagues that we'll be discussing in these chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, with regard to the uh, great and marvelous sign, let me just make a couple of other concluding remarks about this so we'll understand a little bit more what that sign actually is. First of all, it's going to be a literal sign that will appear to the view of people throughout the earth. It is also the final heavenly sign before Christ's second coming to the Mount of Olives. Joseph Smith described this as the great sign of the Son of Man and said this about that, quote, There will be wars and rumors of wars, signs in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, the sun turned into darkness, and the moon to blood, earthquakes in diverse places, the seas heaving beyond their bounds, then will appear one grand sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Close quote. That's found in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith at pages 286 through 287. So he's describing all of the commotion that I just uh, alluded to a moment ago. And then we reach that point where we finally get this one grand sign of the Son of Man. Now this is the last sign in heaven that is given, but it doesn't mean that that's the end of all the commotion or the end of a lot of the uh, calamities, plagues, and judgments that are going to happen. It also appears that this sign of heaven isn't something that just happens 
boom, all of a sudden, and then it's done with. Uh, we don't have the specific details of what this sign actually is, but Joseph Smith said it will be as the light of the morning coming out of the east. And so that suggests that it's something that will become increasingly bright until we get to the point where the Savior actually appears and his glory is so bright that it's like he out outshines even the noonday sun. Now some have suggested that it could be the city of Enoch as it returns in great glory to the earth at the time of the second coming. Uh, we've also talked in the past a little bit about the uh, the elect of God, the 144,000 servants when they appear on heavenly Mount Zion. Uh, that's recorded in uh, Revelation chapter 14. And as that gathering is occurring in heaven, you know, one of the physical manifestations of that event could be this great sign in heaven. And the, the time frame is pretty close for uh, that to be able to occur. So that's a possibility also. Uh, the spiritually enlightened people are going to recognize it for what the sign is and the it's kind of a declaration uh, it's like rolling out the red carpet for uh, the son of man to finally appear uh, as the last thing that kind of happens now for those who are spiritually unenlightened they're going to say oh it's a planet or it's a comet or something like that that they're all going to have some scientific explanation for um, and will not recognize it for what it actually is. Um, the Savior, as I mentioned, uh, talks about this in uh, Matthew chapter 24, which Joseph Smith translated into the Joseph Smith translation version. And uh, Jesus, when he prophesied about the grand sign appearing in heaven, he said, then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. Um, and so we can talk a little bit about what, what does that really mean. It could be the mourning of all the wicked people after Christ appears on the Mount of Olives. It could be the mourning of Jews who survived the abomination of desolation. Uh, it could be them mourning as Christ appears to them on the Mount of Olives and they then recognize that he is the Messiah whom they crucified. It could be the mourning of all celestial people in all the world who are going to be destroyed during the judgments of the third woe. So we don't know exactly what the Savior was referring to when he said all the tribes of the earth shall mourn, but the one thing we can have some confidence in, he wasn't talking about the tribes in the sense of the tribes of Israel. The worthy tribes of Israel, uh, first of all, those who are exaltation worthy, they're already taken up, and so they're not going to be hanging around to see what happens on earth. They might have this view, front row seats in heaven, watching the grand sign of heaven. They could be part of it. Um, so that's what's going on with the exaltation worthy people of the uh, tribes of Israel. So the tribes here, just to reiterate, are... Uh, the people who are still on earth and who for one reason or another, maybe for several reasons, have reason to mourn when they see this great and final sign leading up to the second coming of the Son of Man. So let me, I'm going to restate the uh, information in Revelation 15 once again because I want to move on and talk about these seven angels. But just to give you some context again, after this great sign in heaven happens and we have this great and marvelous sign, then, quote, seven angels 
having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Close quote. So now we want to talk about who are these seven angels that have these seven last plagues. And I have referred to them in prior podcasts, and we'll continue to do so now, that these are the seven vile plague angels. In other words, these seven angels with the seven last plagues, I refer to as the vile plagues. And uh, so the reason for that is because the nature of John's description of these plagues is they're contained in these what the a lot of translations in the Bible refer to as bowls. And so a bowl is something that is kind of a, a wide mouth dish as opposed to like a narrow necked flask or something like this. But it means that if you've got the wrath of God in these bowls, they can be poured out very, very quickly because they're flat uh, like, like a regular bowl of soup. When you pour that out, boom, it just happens very, very quickly. And so the bowls are also translated as vials, but don't think of a vial in the sense of a uh, test tube or a pipette or something like that. These are very wide-mouthed dishes that allow the plagues to be poured out very, very quickly. Another thing that I just want to say in regard to these seven angels, generally speaking, is they are not the grand sign. So you get the grand sign in heaven, and then the seven angels get poured out as the seven last plagues, and they then collectively make up what we refer to as the third woe. They are also the seventh trumpet angels. So you'll recall that when the seventh seal was opened, we had the seven trumpet angels, one through four, then number five was the first woe, number six was the second woe, and this is now the seventh trumpet angel, which is also the third woe, which now explodes into these seven vile plagues that are going to be poured out in rapid succession. And they will complete the millennial cleansing of the earth before the second coming. And it's important to keep in mind, it's not only going to be the culmination of the physical cleansing of the earth, it will be the culmination of the spiritual cleansing of the earth as well. The seven, of course, is going to be symbolic of God's perfect judgments against the wicked. And so when you think of that number seven, you got to be thinking of your uh, symbolism associated with numbers as always. So this is where we get in chapter 15 an introduction to these seven last plagues called the seven vials or seven vile plagues. Um, what we're going to get in chapter 15 is kind of an introduction to them. And then Revelation chapter 16 is going to give the details. It's going to go vile plague by vile plague as to what happens. And those are the details that are be, being provided in Revelation chapter 16 after the sign of the Son of Man is given in Revelation chapter 15. So now let's move on to uh, Revelation chapter 15 too. And as I continue through the podcast, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be selectively choosing certain verses to comment on, basically to give context, to help you understand verses that can be difficult to understand. Um, and if you don't understand them, it throws everything else off in your studies. But if you have kind of these main verses and an understanding of them, I'm hoping that you can then read the rest of them in context and understand what is being said. 
So in Revelation chapter 15, 2, we have the following, quote, and, as, and I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Close quote. The first thing to point out uh, as we talk about this sea of glass mingled with fire is that this represents the glory of God's celestial kingdom or his residence. This is not the, this earth in its celestialized condition. We haven't gotten there yet. Remember, everything goes in order. John doesn't take things out of order. And so right now, we're at the beginning of the third woe, so this cannot possibly represent a description by John of this earth as a celestial kingdom because we won't get there until chapter 21. So we're still several chapters away from that. So the sea of glass mingled with fire is going to represent God's celestial kingdom, his dwelling place or his residence, the place of his throne that he has had since the time he first began his creation of spirit children in the premortal existence. So what's happening here is after he gathers the exaltation-worthy saints at the end of the second woe, and we find that in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 16, then we have now this image of the sea of glass mingled with fire. And the reason is, is because he's taken from the earth and from wherever they might be found, all of the exaltation-worthy saints, they have been resurrected at the end of the second woe, they're now with him, presumably at his celestial residence, which has this appearance of a sea of glass mingled with fire. And so that's what's going on in this verse. And uh, eventually, of course, after the millennium, after the earth dies, after the earth resurrects, then it will also have the same or similar appearance as this sea of glass, which represents God's celestial residence. And so this is, a, by way of another little thing that I want you to make sure that you understand is, this is similar in terms of its description to John's vision of the celestial paradise that he saw in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And so, again, that was way back in terms of what John saw in 96 AD of celestial paradise what he was saying was disembodied spirits who were exaltation worthy and others but now we've marched forward in time through chapter 7 when he saw this great multitude um, who were exaltation worthy people as the second as the second coming approaches and now we are just right on the edge of the second coming and he's now seeing this vision of these people who are now resurrected so they've gone from celestial paradise in revelation 4 and 4, 4 and 5 to the point where they have been resurrected at the end of the second woe and now they're with god um, and it includes everybody it, it the people who were alive on the earth at the time of the uh, second coming resurrection who were quickened and, and lifted up and become immortal or they were transfigured. It includes translated persons. It includes resurrected
resurrected people from the city of Enoch, and uh, these are they who are the 144,000 servants that stand with Christ on heavenly Mount Zion at the beginning of Revelation chapter 14. And so what we can say is this sea of glass of fire described here in Revelation 15:2 is the equivalent to heavenly Mount Zion in Revelation chapter 14 verses 1 and 2. And so now as we begin to go into the third woe, let me throw up on the screen once again uh, something that I've shown you before, and that is kind of the organization of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven vial plagues that we're now talking about. And then by the time we get up to the seventh vial plague is when the second coming is going to occur. And I think it's just important, again, that you understand these uh, events. And because as we go through this podcast, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the seven trumpet angels, the seven trumpet plagues of those angels, and how they differ from the seven vile plagues. You, a lot of people, I'm, I'm not a lot necessarily, but there are those who confuse the seven trumpet plagues for the seven vile plagues. They treat them basically, John's just repeating himself. Uh, he's expounding, he's waxing eloquent, he's uh, t giving us information we already have, and, and that's just not the case. The seven trumpet plagues are essentially foreshadows of the much more serious and devastating seven vile plagues that will result in the final cleansing of the earth. So we've already touched on that in prior podcasts, so I won't go into that in any more detail, but I just wanted you to make sure you understood that as I talk about trumpet plagues and vile plagues, they're different and different time frames. Okay, so as we go into chapter 16 now, we get the introduction to the first four vile plagues in uh, Revelation 16 verses 2 through 9. And uh, again, I'm going to go through them kind of quickly, uh, but I think it's important to give you the context as we then roll into the final three vile plagues that are distinguished from the first four vile plagues. Again, that pattern, you should be used to it by now. They, they, these sevens are always broken down into four and then three, and that's true of the trumpet plagues, it's true of the vile plagues. So in Revelation 16, two, we have this, it says, quote, and the first, meaning the first vile plague angel, or the angel that has the first vile plague, went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and the, there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. Now, what we need to understand in terms of the earth, the reference to the earth in this verse, we're basically talking about dry land as opposed to water and the sky that's going to be afflicted by later vile plagues that follow. So we're not talking about the idea or concept of a plague upon the whole earth. We're talking about a plague upon the dry land. The idea that the plague was noisome is something that refers to something that's evil or bad as an expression of extreme pain and danger. To be grievous means that it was malignant and distressing. To say that it was a sore, you need to have in your mind this image of something that is ulcerous. It's oozing pus and yucky. Um, it's a deadly wound, all right? And so these are conditions that are being described here 
in the first filed plague because things are going to happen in such rapid succession. It's not like this plague happens. Thank goodness it's over. Let's move on to the next one. It's like Jumanji. <laughs> you know, they, they have to play, they roll the dice and something really bad happens and then you get through it. And until the next roll of the dice occurs, you know, a bad thing doesn't happen again. Well, this isn't Jumanji. Okay. This is, this is real life, right? It's not a movie. And uh, and so they just roll right into another and uh, there's not going to be much time in between them. Now, the uh, the plague that we're talking about here in the first vile plague is something that is foreshadowed by the sixth Egyptian plague that caused boils um, upon the Egyptian. And keep in mind that that particular uh, plague that Moses brought about on the Egyptians targeted the Egyptians specifically. And, and that similar kind of targeting occurs here in the first vile plague because now the Lord, through this grievous sore, is targeting those celestial people that are still on the earth with death. And the more righteous terrestrial celestial people are going to survive. So we have this selective kind of destruction, but you also have to understand, of course, that uh, this uh, plague in the first vial is much more severe than the sixth Egyptian plague. That's just a scenes to coming attractions. It's the trailer for what's going to happen during the uh, first vile plague and it's going to extend worldwide and it will also exceed in malignancy the first trumpet plague which also had a similar kind of uh, plague but keep in mind back in Revelation chapter 8-7 with the trumpet plague it specifically states that that plague only afflicted a third part of the world um, and so now we go from the the rather minor affliction of the first, first trumpet plague to this malignancy this sore in the first vile plague so again things are getting worse and worse now we come on to revelation chapter 16 verses 3 and 4 and it says that quote the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of water, and they became blood. Close quote. So, whereas with the Revelation 16:2, where we had the first vial plague that was an affliction upon the, the earth or the dry land, now we're getting the waters that are afflicted by both the uh, the second vile plague and the third vile plague. The, the former being a, a vile plague upon the sea, and then the rivers and fountains of water become blood also. And anybody who drinks that, that quote-unquote water or blood uh, is going to die. And these curses are literal. These plagues are literal. They're not something that uh, we're just saying something symbolic that has some kind of meaning. This is the end of the end here. And so the seawater literally turns black and it's, it's like this loathsome congealed blood of a dead man is what it has the appearance of. Now, whether it's literally, literally blood, I'm not to say, but what I can say is the verse says that it is like the blood of a dead man that's been sitting there and kind of rotting. So it's not fresh blood, it's congealed and really yucky stuff. 
Okay, I think you get the picture. Let's keep moving on. And so it's going to afflict every living soul, meaning every mortal, corruptible creature in the sea. And so this total destruction of sea life is the anti-type, more serious anti-type, for the limited destruction that occurs during the second trumpet plague that you read about in Revelation 8 and 9. And it is also the antitype to the first Egyptian plague when Moses turned the water into blood. And so we all remember that from the Ten Commandments, right? And so that one we remember. Um, but that these this is what where these illusions come into play and give us some idea of what we can expect in the future. And so essentially the difference between the the second vile plague and the third vile plague is one is upon the sea and then it moves and uh, attacks the uh, freshwater systems as well so that anything that drinks that uh, water is going to die. This is also one of the reasons why it tends to confirm why these vile plagues are going to occur in really rapid succession because you can imagine People can only go so long without drinking water, and eventually they're forced to, to drink this congealed, black, yucky thing because once you have the sea and all the freshwater systems afflicted by this curse upon the water, uh, you only have so much time, and then people are just going to die of dehydration. Um, but yet, we still have a bunch of plagues left where people are going to be destroyed. And so this is going to happen in rapid succession. It's just another thing that tends to kind of confirm that. Okay, so if we go on to uh, Revelation chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, we have this, quote, The fourth angel poured out his vile plague upon the sun, and power was given him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Close quote. Okay, what we're dealing with here is, again, similar to, but much worse than the fourth trumpet plague in Revelation chapter 8, verse 12. And also, that trumpet plague darkened the sun, similar to the three days of dark during the ninth Egyptian plague. Here, by contrast, the vile plague actually intensifies the power of the sun. And if we correlate this to the sayings of Isaiah, um, he describes how the sun intensifies in its power by seven times. Probably the seven again being somewhat symbolic, but probably the reference here is an allusion to the prophecies of Isaiah. But essentially this vile plague angel has power given unto him, meaning the power of the sun to scorch men with fire. So many of the celestial people who are dead from the third vile plague because they're drinking blood uh, are going to burn up. Others who are still alive are going to be literally burned by the intense heat from the physical sun. And all of this is a precursor to the all-consuming heat of the glory of Christ himself when he actually appears. Now, some scholars have suggested that this scorching heat may be from atomic weapons, and they cite Zechariah chapter 14, verse 12, um, as this is being a fulfillment of that verse. The verse says, quote, Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away 
uh, in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Close quote. Now, that's a pretty vivid description of you've got somebody standing here and you get this atomic blast that generates so much heat that before that living body can die and strike the ground, their soft tissues have literally been consumed away, including their eyes from their sockets and their tongues away from their mouth. And, and it's, it seems like something that is quite plausible, but my sense is because of the timing that we're now talking about as we come into the third woe and the rapid succession in which things occur, and again, this follows kind of the end of the second woe, where yes, we could see atomic warfare during Armageddon. Here, I think these are more uh, spiritual manifestations. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that they're not also physical, but it is the power of the consuming spirit of God that is essentially going to be cause of this consuming heat. So you have the sun, the appearance of the Savior, and uh, this is what is going to cause the soft tissues in living corpses to uh, essentially be wiped out as the uh, second coming approaches. And note here also, they, they have this problem, even as they're being destroyed by this intense heat, uh, they repent not to give God the glory, they recognize it, and also they blaspheme God because they recognize he's the one, he's the only one that can be causing all of these things to happen. But hey, they, I'm not going to give him the glory. And so these celestial peoples, uh, they're steadfast in the hardness of their hearts right up to uh, the bitter end. Uh, and, and frankly, by the time we get to this in the process of the judgments of God, there really isn't enough time for these people to repent anyway. So even if they had the inclination, um, it's not something that uh, time would permit them to properly do the kind of repentance that uh, would preserve them upon the earth as a terrestrial worthy person who is worthy to stand at the time of the second coming. So as you go into Revelation chapter 16 verses 10 through 16, I'm going to kind of give you a quickie little overview of uh, what we're looking at as we go into 5, 6, and 7. Now remember, we've just had the first four. They're kind of separate. They're, they have these uh, plagues that uh, are directed at uh, the humans that have survived the second woe. And as we come into the fifth and sixth vile plagues, you have to understand that now we're transitioning from physical and attacks upon mortal persons to the evil spirits that exist in the world today and will exist at the time of the third woe. So that's where you, we kind of start making this transition. The four is done. We're transitioning to the three last vile plagues and we're transitioning from physical judgments upon mortal people to judgments upon the evil spirits that will exist upon the earth in that time period. So again, in order for the earth to be renewed to its paradisiacal glory or its terrestrial glory for the millennium, it has to be cleansed both physically 
and spiritually. There is this order in the cleansing process, and it begins with the uh, the destruction of mortal sons of perdition by the end of the second woe. And again, we've, we've already talked about the harvest that occurs in Revelation chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. That's when the mortal sons of perdition, uh, they're the bad guys that go, leaving the celestial people, and they've been hit hard with the first four vile plagues. Now begins the spiritual cleansing with the fifth vile plague of the third woe. And as this happens, what you get is you're going to have this plague of darkness that gets poured out upon the seat of the beast. And this is directed at all evil spirits that have an unseen presence here upon the earth. And it's going to afflict them both unembodied and disembodied spirit sons of perdition, the same guys that were loosed from the abyss or the bottomless pit during the first woe, they were allowed to come on the earth to torment mankind. And then two woes later, the tables are turned. Now the Lord pours out his spirit on those evil spirits, tormenting them with their own tool of spiritual darkness during the period of the fifth plague and then what we're going to do as we roll into the sixth vile plague is we're going to then gather all of these uh, unembodied disembodied sons of perdition spirit sons of perdition um, and prepare for spiritual armageddon so now let's take a look at uh, revelation chapter 16 verses 10 and 11 and we'll actually read the verses that i've already kind of given you a little bit of a sense of what's going to happen and it says this quote and the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast and his kingdom was full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the god of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds and so i've already kind of described this to you about how this fifth vile plague pours out darkness upon the seat of the beast having the effect of reversing what happened during the first woe and uh, so there the the first woe and now this third or the fifth vile plague uh, they're antithetically symmetrical and again I, I call it what goes up must come down if it comes up out of the earth as evil during the first woe we got to go we got to force them back down into their habitations and get them off the earth and so keep in mind that we're here talking about two different kinds of evil spirit both those who are unembodied and those who are disembodied and uh, this is going to be a lot of trouble for them. I mean, you know, they've been giving us a hard time for <laughs> a long time and will again in the future with great power in the future. But now the tables are turned and now they're the ones that will gnaw their tongues for pain. But of course, they can't die. They can just be uh, engulfed in all of this, uh, this pain and this torment and this suffering that comes from the spiritual darkness that engulfs the seed of the beast, but they can't die. They're spirits, all right? And so that's why we have this indication that we're here changing dimensions from physical to spiritual. And uh, as it continues to, uh, to roll on, the seed of the beast will be filled with spiritual darkness as the light of Christ's glory 
rises from the east. And so that's kind of how you have to look at this. This is a natural consequence of the light of Christ at his second coming filling the earth. As that light rises, the darkness has to be dispersed. It has to go away. And uh, that's essentially what now is beginning to happen as we move ever closer to the time when Christ will uh, appear upon the earth. And so now, uh, as we come into Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, we're now actually moving into the spiritual battle of Armageddon itself. And this verse says, quote, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. This verse is a preparatory step in the spiritual battle of Armageddon. The battle itself is going to begin in the next verse, in verse 13. And so just understand that the context of verse 12 is preparatory to the spiritual battle of Armageddon. So in this preparatory step, what we have are the kings of the east, who are the hosts of heaven, the, the, the troops led by Michael, if you want to think of it in that sense, that fight against the spirit sons of perdition, both the unbodied and disembodied. And they prepare for spiritual Armageddon as the sixth vial plague pours out on the Euphrates River. Now we have parallel imagery from Revelation chapter 9 verse 14. That's when we had the second woe, which was the sixth trumpet angel. And we're told in that verse that there were four angels from the Euphrates that were loose to begin the second woe. This is one of the reasons why we get some confusion and people start saying that John is repeating himself and describing the same thing again, because in the sixth trumpet angel, which is the second woe, you have four angels from the Euphrates that begins Armageddon during the second woe. Here, by contrast, we have the sixth vile plague, where again, we see the imagery of the Euphrates River, but they're not the same. And this is made clear by a change that was made by the prophet Joseph Smith in the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation 9.14. And in that verse, the prophet changed the word Euphrates River to the bottomless pit. And he did that to indicate that at the beginning of the second woe, what you had is these these evil spirits who were not from the Euphrates River, but were from the bottomless pit. And they're the ones that incited the mortal armies of Armageddon to gather for this great battle that was about to happen in physical Armageddon. And that's back in chapter number nine. Now here we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 16, and again, a reference to the Euphrates River, but Joseph Smith didn't change it this time. He left the Euphrates River as it was in his translation. And I'm going to talk about why that was and why the distinction is important. But it's just important for you to understand that even though the prophet changed the Euphrates River in Revelation 9 to the bottomless pit, he did not do that in chapter 16. And this is the reason. And the reason is, is because the great river Euphrates being described here in chapter 16 is a symbol of the ancient physical boundary and modern spiritual boundary of Babylon. 
okay? And so way back in the day, when you had Israel on the one hand in the promised land and you had Babylon on the other hand, um, the, the river that divided them was the Euphrates River. And so we have here the imagery of this riverbed drying up, which alludes to several historic events that when you understand them, you start to get an understanding in your head as to why the symbolism of the great Euphrates rivers is given. So the first allusion, of course, to a dry crossing of Israelites on a dry riverbed is found in the account of Moses and the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. And also, by the same token, after they pass through the Red Sea on dry ground, the uh, armies of Pharaoh were then destroyed as the waters then engulfed them and they were all drowned and destroyed. And so this is the, the illusion that we can gather with this final conflict, which is now a spiritual conflict, this idea of crossing a dry riverbed in safety and having your enemies destroyed that's really what we're getting at with this imagery. Another illustration or an allusion to this particular imagery comes from Joshua, uh, Moses' successor, leading the Israelites across the Jordan River to conquer the promised land that was uh, given to Abraham. And so you'll recall perhaps this account is that as the uh, children of Israel were approaching the Jordan River, uh, the priests uh, and the uh, those who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant kind of even got their toes wet right in the river. And then, you know, because of their faith to, you know, kind of take that leap of faith, the, the waters came back and some 600,000 Israelites were able to cross the Jordan River going from the east to the west on dry ground, meaning there was no restraint on their ability. And this vision of having the Ark of the Covenant going in front of the Israelites as they were going into the promised land of Canaan, where they would essentially engage in battles that would lead to the victory of the Israelites over the, ind the indigenous population. And so th that's what the illusion here is. As we now come back to chapter 16 with that little bit of a background, the imagery uses the idea of crossing a dry riverbed with Jehovah leading the Israelites, the, the righteous people, his righteous hosts of heaven, to where they will be able to cross the river Euphrates, no restraint, and they're going to conquer their enemies. And this, this is a spiritual battle now going on. This is not a, a physical battle that we're talking about, but that's why the great river Euphrates represents this boundary between modern Babylon and the promised land of Israel between good and evil. And when you take the waters away from the river so that the hosts of heaven led by Michael and the savior himself can cross the riverbed on dry ground without restraint, uh, with victory essentially assured against the uh, uh, evil spirit sons of perdition, both unembodied and disembodied. So that, that's what this imagery is talking about. That's why Joseph Smith didn't change the word of the Euphrates River to the bottomless pit. It's quite the opposite. We have the hosts of heaven who are these kings of the east 
coming across the Euphrates River as a symbol of a dried up river to indicate the bad guys are in big trouble. <laughs> the bad spiritual guys, they're in big trouble. And so that's what the imagery is uh, talking about. And as the second coming approaches, Christ will come as King of Kings to conquer. He will be in the company of his 144,000 servants who were initially standing with him on Mount Zion, and he will lead them into this battle against the uh, spirit sons of perdition. And uh, these 144,000 are the same as what is described as the kings of the east. And why are they the kings of the east? Well, because the 144,000 servants are kings. They're kings who are subordinate to the king of kings. Uh, and they are kings of the east because when Christ comes to the earth for his second coming, <clears throat> he will come from the east. And so all of these uh, imagery starts to uh, tie together, but it is essentially these exaltation worthy kings of the east who will battle all evil spirits during the seventh vial plague. So the sixth vial plague again is preparatory only. And you, you know that because in the verse itself, it says the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. So again, this is the preparatory verse that is going to lead us to the actual battle of uh, spirit Armageddon once we get to the seventh vile plague itself. And the dry riverbed means that when that time comes and they come from the direction of the rising sun in the east, um, that dry riverbed means they're not going to meet with any resistance. These evil spirits, again, who had the, uh, the darkness poured out upon the seed of the beast in the fifth vile plague, and now we've got the kings of the east coming at them uh, on a dry riverbed, they're going to be completely defenseless. They're going to be defenseless against Christ, who is the conquering king, and this battle is going to be very short-lived because the, the Babylon the Great, both spiritually and temporally, is going to fall. And all of this is foreshadowed by the sudden fall of ancient Babylon. And you recall the story, I've, I've mentioned it before, how uh, the city of Babylon was the greatest fortress and stronghold in uh, the ancient world. And it fell to a single night to King Cyrus, who is a type of Christ, when he and his armies of the Medes and the Persians uh, dammed up the uh, river waters of the Euphrates River that flowed under the walls of Babylon. And once they dammed up the, uh, the river and sent it off into these various channels that they had been working on, the Euphrates River went down and Cyrus and his armies were essentially able to uh, go under the walls of Babylon on a dry riverbed and they captured Babylon without resistance in a single night. So that's where all of this imagery comes into play with the spiritual battle of Armageddon and these kings of the east who uh, come prepared to uh, wipe out all of these uh, spirit sons of perdition, both who are those who are unembodied and those who are disembodied. Okay, that brings us now to uh, Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, and this is what it says, quote, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, I will tell you right off the bat, 
This is a verse that is very, very little understood by most commentators. Um, and, and people just don't understand what it is. And part of the reason is because they don't understand and appreciate that what we're talking about here is spiritual Armageddon. And once you put this in the context, then it begins to become much clearer. And it's really hard to understand why people don't appreciate this because it specifically says that what he's what John is seeing in verse 13 is these three unclean spirits like frog we're talking about spiritual things now um, and they aren't spiritual things in the sense that they were talking about heaven and hell um, we're talking about the spirits who exist on this earth and the description of uh, of spiritual uh, Armageddon so we have essentially these spirit sons of perdition that are on the earth and they are in the image of three unclean spirits like frog this is the first and only mention of frogs in the New Testament. The imagery comes from the second plague of Egypt found in Exodus chapter 8. And you may recall in that particular plague, you had these frogs that literally afflicted both Israelites and Egyptians in every aspect of life. And uh, it's important to understand that the Egyptians believed that frogs had this divine power and were not to be killed. And so we're going to start to build on some images here that help us to understand what's going on. But <laughs> as I think about these frogs and the idea that there's a prohibition from, uh, from killing frogs, uh, it reminds me of a story. Uh, when we lived in Sacramento, um, one of my nephews came down and, you know, out in Sacramento, they have the kind of uh, climate and everything that is conducive to growing pretty large frogs. Unlike when I grew up in Wyoming, we got, have these frogs that don't get bigger than the size of silver dollars, you know. But the frogs in Sacramento, they, they get pretty big out in the country where I was living. And so my nephew came down and so one day he had this great idea that uh, let, let's have frog legs. <laughs> and so we went out and my property had a pond on it and you could tell oh, those frogs, they were sometimes croaking, you'd drive you crazy. But at any rate, we went and did some frog hunting. We eventually caught some of these good sized frogs and, uh, and we fried up these frogs. <laughs> frog legs and the only thing I could tell you that the most memorable thing coming out of that is after I tried these frog legs was uh, they taste like rubbery chicken <laughs> so at any rate uh, if I was an Egyptian we wouldn't have been trying frog legs in Sacramento because uh, they uh, were supposed to have this divine power and an absolute prohibition against killing them which is a real problem because as these frogs from this uh, plague were uh, coming on the Egyptians, I mean, there were just gobs and gobs of these horrible frogs and, and infecting virtually every aspect of their lives. You, you couldn't get rid of them. They were everywhere. But uh, the, uh, the frog was venerated and uh, there was an Egyptian goddess by the name of Haket who had the head of a frog and uh, her power was that she had the breath of life and immortality that came from her nostrils and so <laughs> which kind of creates this uh, rather interesting image in of itself because of course after the uh, the plague of frogs which was the second plague in Egypt 
all these frogs were just everywhere. When the, the plague was over, they all started dying, and these dead and decaying, decaying bodies of these frogs are stacked up in these large piles, uh, and just the stench of them <laughs> would drive a person insane. And so that's the kind of imagery that we're getting here in this uh, particular vile plague, where you've got these three unclean spirits, like frogs, um, who are coming out? So, so now to try and understand the imagery. We've got we've got things like you've got three unclean spirits. They're like frogs, and then we have this history of what all this means and would have meant to people living in the time of John, who were familiar with the veneration of frogs by the Egyptians and how these frogs basically come out of the mouth not just one place, but in three different places, the dragon, the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. Now, it's important to observe here that this verse is the first time that the false prophet is mentioned in the book of Revelation. And John mentions it almost in passing as though we're all supposed to be familiar with who the false prophet is and who the beast is, which is more clear to us, and certainly than the dragon. Everybody understands this concept of the uh, dragon. And uh, so now we try and take all of these images that have been collected together, and this is what we can conclude from this, is that in Revelation uh, chapter 16, verse 13, what you have is a division of the spirit sons of perdition into three groups. These are the three unclean spirits like frogs. You have the dragon, you have the beast, you have the false prophet, each of whom is an individual who stands at the head of each distinctive group. And they come out of the metaphorical mouths or nostrils of their spiritual head. And so you essentially have the, the three groups of these spirits that leave their spiritual head like the breath of life coming out of the spiritual head. And when the, uh, the breath of life, so to speak, comes out of them, they lose their power and influence during the sixth vile plague. All right. And so essentially compare this to the, the breath of life imagery that we have at the time of the physical creation. You have the breath of life that is breathed into Adam, and it is this breath of life that gives his physical body life. And when the spirit or the breath of life leaves the body, that results in a physical death. Well, that's the imagery that we now have to translate into spiritual Armageddon. And essentially what you have is you have the spirit leaving or the power of life, the power of movement, the power of authority, the power to conduct evil upon the earth and do these really bad things uh, that are headed up by the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They lose that power and influence in their life. They don't die physically, but spiritually they no longer have life to carry on their war against this overwhelming force of Christ and the hosts of heaven. And so when, that, when the spirit comes out of the mouth uh, like frogs, these venerated frogs, and this is giving us this imagery of the breath of life and everything, then 
they lose their power. Now, this is an important concept because what we have to understand in this imagery is that the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are essentially an evil presidency of three spirits. Each is the actual spirit of a man. And the dragon symbol, of course, is the symbol that we all recognize as Satan or Lucifer, as he was called in the pre-mortal existence. And, and nobody has any issue with that. We always recognize that the dragon is a symbol for Satan as an un, unembodied spirit son of God and a spirit son of perdition or perdition. But he has he's unembodied. He's a spirit person. He's the head that stands at the head of all of these unembodied spirits that rebelled with him in the premortal existence. And we all understand that and appreciate that. And there's really no question about that doctrinal truth. Well, the beast and the false prophet are his counterparts and they share his kind of uh, relationship. And so as the dragon is the symbol of Satan as a spirit, so too the beast must be the spirit of a man who stands at the head of his group of evil spirits. And then you have the false prophet who is an evil spirit of a man who also stands at the head of his group because there's three groups. That's what's being identified here in verse 13. And what we come to understand is that these others, uh, that, that is the beast and the false prophet, necessarily have to be the spirit of a man. How do we know that? Well, we look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit here. And this verse says this, quote, and the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. And I got a break, sorry. Again, the beast that we're talking about here in chapter 19 is the same as the beast in chapter 16, as is the false prophet. Same people are involved. And now we're going to get an idea as to why they have to represent the spirits of some people of a person each uh, because of what is done to them in chapter 19. Now in chapter 19, what's happening here is we're coming now to the end of spiritual Armageddon and we're being told by John what happened to the beast and to the false prophet at the end of the war in heaven. But this verse is very instructive because we're introduced to them in Revelation 16, 13 almost like you already know who these people are, but we really don't in many cases, but we learn that from this verse in Revelation 19.20. So now let me start again. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone, close quote. The operative language that I'm trying to point out here is that the, drag, that the beast and the false prophet were both cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And that's the, the fire of burning with brimstone is a symbolic way of saying they were cast into outer darkness. But the important point is they were cast alive into outer darkness. They're spirits. 
They're not like some entity. They're not like a political group. They're not a uh, secret combination that's made up of this assembly of evil and wicked people. They, they are an individual who stands at the head of this army of evil spirits that they command and they get cast alive into the lake of fire. If they were some entity, if they were some organization, we wouldn't be casting them alive. All right. And so that's how we come to know that they share the same kind of symbolism as Lucifer, who's the dragon by symbol representing the evil spirit of Lucifer or Satan himself. Now, what happens to him at the end of the war in heaven? We learn that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, which says as follows, quote, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. Close quote. So that's what we find happens to the dragon, which is the spirit of Satan. And just so there's no confusion, he tells us, hey, this, this dragon, he's the old spirit, he's the devil, he's the Satan, he got bound, but then he's, he's still alive and he gets loosed again at the end of the millennium for this little season. So he's, it's the individual spirit of a man and the dragon stands at his head, which represents all of these unembodied sons of perdition, that followed him from the time of the premortal existence. And then we have the beast who represents the disembodied spirit of an individual who I identify as none other than Cain. Why? Because Satan, at the time that Cain killed his brother Abel, was promised that Satan would give Cain his power. And uh, when we will get into this in more detail, but essentially Cain is the same one who represents the kingdom of the first beast that we talked about in connection with Revelation 13.1. But uh, granted, it was kind of at a cursory 30,000 foot elevation kind of uh, view. Finally, we have the false prophet who's mentioned for the first time, as I said, in Revelation 16.13. Um, we don't get an explanation of him. But there are only three individuals who have ever lived upon the earth who were known as and identified as sons of perdition or perdition. And the, the first we know, of course, is Satan. Uh, the second was Cain. And the third is none other than Judas Iscariot. Um, and I've gone back and forth and looked at this a lot. And I conclude that the uh, spiritual head uh, represented by the false prophet is none other than the spirit of Judas Iscariot, who is the uh, third son of perdition identified in Scripture. And we're going to go get into that in more detail when we have more time, but uh, I just think it's important that you understand that he stands at the head of a certain number of uh, disembodied spirit sons of perdition who he is the leader for. And uh, so if we go step back just a little bit, just to give you a little bit more context here, I don't want to leave you hanging. But if you go back to Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, we find in that verse where it says, quote, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, 
and he spake as a dragon, close quote. So this is where we get the transition from the first beast, whose spiritual head was Cain, to the second beast in Revelation chapter 13, whose spiritual head I'm now telling you was the uh, spirit of Judas Iscariot. Now, why, why do I say that? This verse, Revelation 13, 11, is part of the reason why we have to conclude this. It is in the nature of the description of the second beast. The second beast isn't Judas. Judas stands at the head of those people, organizations, instrumentalities, both political, educational, secular, all kinds um, who are represented by the beast. He stands as the spiritual head of the second beast. And why, why would we choose or assume that he would be the spiritual head of the second beast? It's because of the description given by John in Revelation 13, 11 of this second beast. It says he had two horns like a lamb, but when he spoke, he spake as a dragon. And that depicts Judas as an apostle of the lamb very, very accurately. Keep in mind, it was when he spoke the words of betrayal like a dragon, Jesus was crucified. He is this deceptive false prophet. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was a feigned friend who betrayed the Savior with a kiss. And so you kind of start tying all these things together that then lead to the conclusion that this false prophet can be none other than the disembodied spirit of Judas Iscariot, who was uh, like a lamb, but spake as a dragon. All right, so let's come down now to, uh, we're coming back to Revelation chapter 16, 14. Um, and this verse says, quote, For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Close quote. So when we're talking here now about the spirits of devils working miracles, we're talking about the three heads that we just mentioned, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And they are gathering the spirits of devils uh, of the whole world, gathering them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And so that's what we're essentially talking back about in this context. And they use their miracles of influence to gather the evil spirits for the spiritual battle of uh, Armageddon. And uh, it's important to note here that where we're talking here about the, uh, the spirits gathering the kings of the earth, we're not talking about mortal kings of the earth. We're talking about the uh, kings of the earth who are evil spirits themselves. So these evil kings of the earth who are mortals, they're a part of physical Armageddon, but those spirits that have influence over them and therefore are associated with the kings of the earth are those that are gathering now for uh, spiritual Armageddon. And so we have these kinds of uh, typology that are working and we have to separate the events of the second woe when everything was about physical Armageddon from these different and distinctive events in the third war, third woe, which are spiritual. But a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people are gonna say that what we're talking about here about uh, these spirits of devils working and, and bringing people together for the great uh, day of God Almighty, um, 
they're associating this with physical Armageddon, and uh, they do it also in part because of what we find in the next verse, which is Revelation 16, 16, where it says, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, close quote. So in this verse also, what we have people saying is, oh, this is the, uh, the gathering of these 200 million mortal men who are going to fight in the physical battle of Armageddon as described in Revelation chapter 9. And again, that kind of violates the rules that I keep <laughs> digging my heels in about that John's not repeating himself. Uh, that was then, and this is now. That was physical, and this is spiritual. But th this is the, uh, the battle of Armageddon as a spiritual event uh, that also occurs apparently in and around Jerusalem in this uh, place called uh, Armageddon, which means the mountain of destruction or Har Megiddo. Uh, it's also the place where there are many notable <clears throat> and decisive battles, both anciently and in modern. So let's go to Revelation chapter 16, verse 17, which states as follows, quote, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. Now this is God the Father speaking from the throne, um, and it is the antitype for the Savior's final words of victory on the cross when he said, it is finished. Now keep in mind that when Christ spoke um, from the cross saying, it is finished, there were then convulsions and tempests and uh, other fires, earthquakes, and things on the American continent for the period of three hours that completely changed the topography on the American continent. And similarly, when the Father declares here in this verse, it is done, this is going to have the effect of changing the topography of the entire earth as the earth returns to its paradisiacal conditions. And so as you come into uh, verse 18, it says, quote, There were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as what is not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. That's what happens when the Father says it is done. And so it begins with this uh, great earthquake followed by other physical manifestations. <clears throat> now, it's important to remember, and I mentioned this before, that John describes three different earthquakes in the book of Revelation. The first occurred at the end of the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. This is an earthquake that we're still looking forward to in our future when we know that we've come to the end of the sixth seal and the start of the seventh seal. The second great earthquake occurs at the time of the resurrection of the two witnesses in Jerusalem in Revelation 11, verse 13. So that comes at the end of the second woe. Here we are now entering into or approaching the third woe uh, when Christ will step foot on the Mount of Olives and uh, this is going to be the most powerful earthquake in history. It's going to change the uh, topography in uh, Jerusalem where you get the Mount of Olives that is going to cleave in twain. Uh, you're going to get the reunification of the eastern and western hemispheres into a single landmass. And so as you continue to read the verses uh, from Revelation 16, 19 through 20, uh, it's going to add more details to the kinds of calamities and commotion that are going to exist after the Father says, 
quote, it is done, close quote. And that's where we kind of leave off at the end of chapter uh, 16. We've gotten a lot of details about things leading up to the uh, seventh and final vile plague. And now all of a sudden the father kind of says it is done. We get some of the details about some of the physical calamities, but there are a lot of things left unsaid at this point about what actually happens as that seventh vile plague, which is the last and final vile plague, uh, and what's going to happen. And so as you come into chapter 17, again, we have here a continuation of John's uh, account without uh, any breaks. And it says this in verses 1 and 2, quote, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Close quote. So essentially what happens as we come into chapter 17 is the father declares it is done with only limited explanation and then one of the seven angels that had the vile place come to john and says hey come hither i'm going to show you what just happened and i'm going to give you some details about what's happening and revelation 17 then is essentially a description of the great horror of false religion and john isn't going to just talk about the demise of the great horror of false religion. He's going to give us a little bit of background information. And so as we begin Revelation 17, we're talking about a woman, this whore that sitteth upon many waters. This image is specific to the Latter-day Church of the Devil since 1830. And, and I've talked in the past a little bit about how Satan organized his kingdom as the second beast at the time the church was restored in 1830, and that's why I'm picking this date, because when the restoration of the gospel occurred, and you have the establishment again of God's kingdom upon the earth, well, Satan redoubles his effort, and he begins his kingdom, um, and I've kind of talked about or alluded to this in the past with <clears throat> Judas Iscariot as the head of his latest kingdom. And so all of these pieces start to fit together, but these many waters... Uh, that the great horse sits upon symbolize the world war the worldwide presence of Satan's kingdom upon the earth in the latter days and he has dominion over all nations kindreds tongues and people uh, the imagery of sitting on many waters comes from the ancient city of Babylon which was built over the Euphrates River as I uh, mentioned a little bit ago and so you have this uh, great whore of false religion which encompasses any uh, institution, religious, political, educational, um, whatever it might be that lead people away from the true worship of Jesus Christ. That's who this great whore is. That is the latter-day false religions that exist. And she uh, is the evil antithesis of the uh, this glorious woman who is described as Christ true church in revelation 12 we saw her in two different time frames one as the pre-mortal church of god and then after chapter after verse 13 or so when we see her image again she's then representing the uh, true church of jesus christ as an ancient church and then we're going to see her again 
in chapter 19, where she represents a chaste woman who represents the bride of Christ in both Revelation 19 and again in Revelation 21. So you have on the one hand this great whore of false religion, and then you have the glorious woman uh, who represents Christ's true church, and they are antithetical to each other. Now, as we come into Revelation 17, 3 through 4, I'm just going to give you a very, very brief overview of these verses, um, and I'm going to kind of do it on the fly. I'm just going to give you enough information to give you the proper context in which to read and understand these verses. So, in starting in verse 3, it says, so he, meaning this angel who said, come hither, and I'm going to show you what just happened. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman, i.e. false religion, sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. That scarlet-colored beast represents the Roman Empire anciently. That we know because it's describing this empire as being full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And we're not going to go into that imagery right now, but just trust me on this one. That's a representation of the ancient Roman Empire. Then as we come into verse 4, it says, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now, what just happened in as we went from verse 3 where we had the uh, the woman of false of false religion sitting upon the bloodied beast of the Roman Empire into verse 4 we have her evolution so she's changing over time the woman that is arrayed in purple and scarlet color is still the woman who was first seated upon the scarlet colored beast but now we've moved forward several hundred years and now the same woman who's the representation of false religion is arrayed in purple and scarlet color. This occurs at the time that uh, the Emperor Constantine adopted the paganized form of Christianity as the, st the state religion for the Roman Empire. Now what happened at the time that that occurred was this church that was once heavily persecuted and uh, you can hardly show your face in public uh, and be in danger of uh, being killed for being a professing Christian. Well, suddenly the tables have turned and now they're the favored religion. And so anybody who was a leader in the church at that time went from an outcast and a pariah in society to being something that was venerated and they were welcomed into the courts of Constantine and they were arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and they were given precious stones of pearl. That's what it's describing here in uh, verse 4. And so it's part of the uh, the woman's evolutionary process and you just kind of need to understand that that that's what John's doing by the time he gets to the description of the great horror of false religion he takes us all the way back to this woman in the Roman Empire brings us forward in time he's just telling us how we got where we are and that's what the angel said specifically he was going to do in Revelation 17 1 when he said come hither I'm going to show you how we got here all right and that's what he's doing now, if we come forward, uh, I'm going to skip a few verses, come forward to Revelation uh, 17.10 um, and explain what we're talking about in reference to these kings 
that John refers to. And it says, quote, and there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space, close quote. And again, just to give you the context of this, these seven kings represent seven worldly kingdoms that oppose God's covenant people. In other words, false religion. And religion in a very broad sense, not just in an ecclesiastical sense, but false religion in the sense of false empires, false beliefs, false secular um, organizations, false educational institutions, whatever the case might be. That's what we're talking about, our worldly kingdoms. And five of them are fallen as of the time of John's vision in 96 AD. And these include Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. They're all gone. The empire that existed in the time of John was the sixth kingdom, which is the Roman Empire. This was still the ruling empire at the time of John's vision, and it endured in the Holy Roman Empire until the time of the Reformation. So when we talk about this sixth kingdom, just to give you a sense of how many times it's described and in what context, the sixth kingdom, which I'm telling you is the Roman Empire, both as in the Imperial Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Empire, these things are described as the first beast in Revelation 13, 1 through 8. They are described as the scarlet-colored beast in Revelation 17, 3 through 4. It is described as a dreadful and terrible beast in Daniel chapter 7. And it is also described as the great and abominable church in 1 Nephi 13. All of those are the sixth kingdom that is... Uh, as of the time of John's vision in 96 AD. Then he talks about a seventh kingdom that is not yet come. This seventh kingdom uh, represents the seventh kingdom of Satan after the Reformation and the demise of the power of the Holy Roman Empire after the Reformation. This seventh kingdom is also represented by the little horn that grew out from among the ten horns in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. The seventh kingdom is also the second beast in Revelation chapter 13 verses 11 through 18. The seventh kingdom is also the mother of abominations whose founder is the devil as described in 1 Nephi chapter 14. And in a very general sense, this seventh kingdom is what we refer to today as modern Babylon. This is the kingdom that we are now confronted with as of the restoration of the gospel in 1830. It's modern Babylon. Now notice in this verse, it also says that this seventh worldly kingdom of Satan will only continue a short space. And by that, I'm interpreting that to mean the period of time from 1830 until the second coming. That's when modern Babylon is going to burn and where it will fall in one day. And when that occurs, as described in, in Revelation 17:11, it will become the beast that was and is not. And so if we put that verse up on the screen for those of you who are watching, it says, quote, And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. 
So as we talk about this beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, this can also be a little bit confusing. So I'm going to talk about it in very general terms. But essentially, when we talk about uh, in Revelation 17, 8, the concept that there was this beast that was and is not and yet is, that's a description of the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 AD and the rise of the Holy Roman Empire in uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. Remember, that's the verse that talked about the head that was wounded to death and then healed. Um, here, if we compare that verse with Revelation 17, 11, this concept that the beast was and is not and yet is, in this verse, it omits the words and yet is. And what we're to understand by this in Revelation 17, he's describing this seventh kingdom that uh, was and is not and it does not include the description and yet is because modern Babylon will not rise again after the second coming like the Holy Roman Empire rose again out of the ashes of Imperial Rome like a wounded head that came back to, to life. And so that's why we get these distinctions. These are small little word changes, but they can have great meaning once you kind of dissect them a little bit and try and understand why did he say this in this verse and not so much in another verse. Okay, so that brings us then to the seventh kingdom. It won't rise again, but yet John describes in verse 11 this uh, eighth kingdom that will come. And so you say, well, you just got done telling me that the seventh kingdom, which is modern Babylon, when it falls at the time of the second coming, is not going to rise again. It will not qualify to be, as John used the words, yet is. And so where do we end up with this eighth kingdom and who is that? And what it is, is this is Satan and his unembodied sons of perdition who represent this eighth kingdom. Now keep in mind, and I read these verses to you a moment ago, at the end of uh, spiritual Armageddon in uh, Revelation 21 through 3, um, Satan and his unembodied spirit sons of perdition are going to be cast into the bottomless pit um, where they were going to remain for a thousand years. But those verses also tell us that they will be loosed again for a little season. And so that's the eighth kingdom. When Satan is loosed again, but it's a different kingdom. It's, it's part of the same kingdom, and yet it's different. And why is that so? Well, because modern Babylon consists of three different groups with three different spiritual heads, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And they're all duking it out as evil spirits on the earth. And uh, the beast and the false prophet, as I showed you earlier, they get cast into outer darkness, into the lake of fire burning with brimstone at the end of the third woe in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. They don't come back. They're, they're done. And that's why when the seventh kingdom ends, they're over. They're part of modern Babylon, but they don't ever get to come back. But yet Satan is only cast in the bottomless pit, and we're specifically told he's going to get loosed again. He's going to form an eighth kingdom, but now he doesn't get the help of all these other disembodied spirit sons of perdition. He's on his own. And so yet it is, it's still a kingdom of Satan. It is an eighth kingdom, 
but it differs from the seventh kingdom in a rather remarkable world. And you have to keep in mind the numerology. The number eight represents a newness of life. Uh, it is something after the perfect number seven is complete, and you have the eighth representing a newness. And in this case, it is, represents a new evil empire or kingdom of Satan that begins when Satan is loosed again at the end of the little season. And so you can kind of get from that a better understanding of what is being talked about here. And it's interesting to note, again, this is John and his use of words. Uh, he says the eighth kingdom <clears throat> is described as the beast that was and is not. And notice how this is exactly opposite of the words that John uses to describe the Savior as him which is and which was and which is to come. Okay, so you got the beast that was and is not, Christ who which is, which was, and is to come. So he, he uses these words to emphasize the, uh, the opposition and direct opposites that exist between Satan and his kingdom and Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Okay, so now as we roll into Revelation chapter 18, we have the fall of modern Babylon, which is essentially the secular kingdom of Satan. So in chapter 17, we talked about the, uh, the great whore of false religion. And so it was kind of specific to any organization or institution that led people away from the true church of Jesus Christ and the salvation which exists in the true church of Jesus Christ. And here, uh, what we're getting is, it's, it's really con a continuation of the description of the defeat of Satan's kingdom, but the emphasis is going to be on secular things more so than on this concept of false religion. And so here's what we find as we begin chapter 18. It says, quote, in verse one, and after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory, close quote. Now, what this is essentially describing is the start of the defeat of Satan's kingdom. So keep in mind when we were starting out in 17, and we had this concept of the great horror of false religion, remember how John kind of backtracked and he gave us a little bit of context about where this woman came from, this woman that sits upon many waters. She started out as the, uh, the woman of false religion who was sitting on the bloody beast of the Roman Empire, evolved into this woman who was adorned with precious pearls and jewels and everything uh, that were part of the Constantinian church, and then moving forward. Well, John is doing the same thing here in verse 18, and he's backing up just a little bit to describe this angel that comes down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory. He is describing here the visitation of Jesus Christ for his coronation at the time of Adam on Diamond. And so if you see some parallels between the description of this powerful angel or this being that comes down from heaven with great power and authority in Revelation chapter 10, you're going to see similarities here with the angel having great power and the earth being lightened with his glory in verse 1 of chapter 18. And the reason is they're describing the same event. So Christ is the mighty angel 
that comes down in Revelation 10.1. He's the mighty angel in the time of the gathering of Adam on Diamond for his coronation. And what the background information here is that as Christ is coronated and his power on earth begins to rise, that necessarily correlates to the demise of modern Babylon and Satan's power in a secular world. And so essentially what you need to understand is when you read Revelation 18 verses 1 through 3, this is describing the spiritual fall of modern Babylon, which occurs at the time of Adam and Diamond, three and a half years before the second coming. So we're getting this again the same event, only it's from two different perspectives. When it was being described in chapter 10, the perspective was all about Christ being coronated as King of Kings at Adam on Diamond and uh, moving forward. Here, we're getting the viewpoint of not the rise of Christ as King of Kings, but the demise of Satan as his kingdom of modern Babylon begins to fall, first spiritually and then physically. So uh, the, the, during this period of time of three and a half years, of course, where you have the spiritual fall, by the time we get to the second coming, we're going to have a physical fall that's going to occur in one day. Now, coming to Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, we see that Christ cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Again, this is Adam on Diamond. Notice here that it's not saying that the earth is become destroyed, all of the evil spirits and the devils, everybody's been destroyed and wiped out. No, we've got them still here. They're, the earth has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit. So there are restraints. It's like the devils have become restrained. They're in cages like unclean and hateful birds, but they're not destroyed yet because that hasn't happened until the actual second coming is complete and then they're totally wiped out. So this is still a precursor where John's giving us some background information to help us understand what happens to Satan's kingdom when the second coming actually happens. Now notice here that it talks about Babylon the great is fallen is fallen and that sounds somewhat poetic. That's that's uh, you know allusions back to uh, Isaiah's description of Babylon and how Babylon has fallen is fallen. And we always just kind of assume well that's just kind of these prophets waxing eloquent and it uh, emphasizes the point that it's not only fallen but is fallen twice really because we mean it when we say it <laughs> and and there's some truth to that in terms of the poetry but it's also you have to understand that there is a spiritual fall and there is a physical fall and so we're describing two separate things here in this poetic kind of imagery and babylon the great falls spiritually at the time of adam on diamond as Christ's power begins to rise, not completely because he hasn't gotten all the way to the second coming yet, but by the time of the second coming, when Christ's power is fully engaged upon the earth and Babylon falls, it will fall physically and it will happen in a single day. All right, so that's all I'm going to talk about in terms of chapter 18. I think that gives you enough context to kind of read a lot of the other stuff about how 
Babylon, meaning modern Babylon, actually physically falls at the time of the second coming. So now we come into uh, Revelation chapter 19. This is John's final description of the events. Remember, the angel comes in when, after the Lord says, it is done, in, uh, at the end of chapter 16. He then goes into this description of chapter 17, a description of the great whore and what happened to her, chapter 18, a description of what happens to modern Babylon. And now this is kind of the cleanup chapter. Everything is going to come to a conclusion. The second coming, which I've described as more of a process than a single event, will finally culminate. And so as we start out in uh, Revelation chapter 19, we're going to get a lot of righteous saints rejoicing and everything. We're, we're in happy times because uh, the great whore has uh, had judgment uh, against her. Ba Babylon has fallen. And so now it's a time for uh, whooping it up and uh, getting happy. And so everyone is rejoicing as we come now to Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, which says, quote, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Close quote. In this verse, we have the words, Let us be glad and rejoice, which are loudly spoken by the great multitude of 144,000 servants. And they're rejoicing because of the joyful marriage of the Lamb that occurs as Babylon is destroyed. The 144,000 servants represent all exaltation-worthy members of Christ's church in all ages. The faithful saints with the seal of the living God from any age are the metaphorical bride. And the marriage of the Lamb is a common metaphor in Scripture for the consummation of all of Christ's covenants that are fulfilled as of the second coming. So in the Old Testament, uh, for example, in terms of this being a common metaphor, uh, the ancient Israelites were considered to be an unfaithful wife when they were disobedient to the commandments of Jehovah. And so these things all merge together and are these allusions to the marriage that ultimately happens at the time of the second coming. Now the marriage is also the complete merger of Christ's political kingdom with his ecclesiastical kingdom. And the ecclesiastical kingdom consists of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And when it merges with Christ's political kingdom as of the second coming, that is the time when Christ comes and reigns on earth in the capacity of a king and establishes his political kingdom. When you get the merger of that political kingdom with the ecclesiastical kingdom, then you have what is known as the Church of the Firstborn. Those are the two elements of the Church of the Firstborn. And the members of this church are all exaltation-worthy saints, and they are the 144,000 servants that we've been referring to on prior occasions. Now, the marriage of the Lamb occurs on Mount Zion in heaven when the 144,000 servants stand with Christ to become his bride as recorded in Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. These servants include the resurrected saints from the city of Enoch, all exaltation-worthy saints who rise in the morning of the first resurrection. They are translated or quickened people that are caught up to meet the Savior at the time of the second coming. And they will be able to descend with him after their marriage to him 
at the time of the second coming. Now the bride is also sometimes called New Jerusalem, Holy Jerusalem, Heavenly Zion, or simply Zion. All of these names apply to the citizens of Zion because they descend with Christ as his marriage partner. Now if we go down to Revelation 19, 9, it says, quote, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So what's happening in this verse is that now that we've had the marriage of Christ to his bride on heavenly Mount Zion, they descend for what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this is symbolism is common in uh, the Jewish custom where the supper separately follows the marriage ceremony. Jesus used these customs when he gave the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25. When the bridegroom was coming and we have the foolish virgins who were not prepared, he was already married at that time and they were getting ready for the marriage supper and they were kept from attending the marriage supper because they didn't have oil in their lamps. And so that symbolism is the same that we're getting here, only this is now reality. And the reality of it is, is that Christ marries his bride in heavenly Mount Zion, as recorded in, in Revelation 14, and then he descends with his bride to the marriage supper. The marriage supper is also represented in the marriage of the king's son, the parable found in Matthew chapter 22. The location for the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be the New Jerusalem in Missouri. This coincides in time with Christ's sudden appearance at his temple at that location. And this constitutes the first appearance of the second coming. So all saints who are celestial worthy will be able to attend the marriage supper. And uh, this will occur at the temple that is yet to be built in independence. So we still have some work to do in building this temple so that at the time of Christ's first appearance of the second coming, there will then be a temple there. My suspicion is that this will be the time when that temple will also be dedicated, although we don't have that uh, stated specifically, but that's likely to be the case. And he comes with his bride, who are the exaltation-worthy people who stood with him on Mount Zion, and the guests that now attend the marriage feast are in addition to the exaltation worthy saints and they include anyone who qualifies to have entry into the celestial kingdom so we're talking here about those people who would become unexalted ministering angels in the celestial kingdom and so we have uh, that all occurring now Keep in mind, this is just the first appearance of his second coming, and there are three total appearances that he's going to make. The first being, as I mentioned, here in New Jerusalem for his marriage supper. The second appearance of Christ uh, during this, what we call the second coming, is going to be his appearance on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and that will come as Armageddon is coming to an end in Jerusalem. And then the third appearance will be his appearance to the world at large, which is the final end of physical Armageddon. Now, correlating that with some of the information in the verses in chapter 19, what we have in verses 11 through 21 are the symbolic description of his last two appearances. So in verses 11 through 16, 
you have the end of physical Armageddon. This is going to be the destruction of all telestial people who refuse to repent. It first occurs first with the destruction in the area of Jerusalem when all of the telestial worthy people are destroyed in the wine press of Armageddon. Now, the wine press mentioned in these verses is similar to the wine press that we already found and saw in Revelation chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. So we actually have two mentions of wine press in the book of Revelation, one of them at the end of the second woe, when we have the destruction of all the mortal sons of perdition, and then we have now here in chapter 19, the wine press imagery again, but now the subjects of the destruction or treading of the grapes in the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God are now the telestial people. So again, it goes in this uh, order, uh, and there is a hierarchy to the destruction that occurs. Then when we come down to Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, we essentially have the destruction of all the telestial people followed by the what is called the Supper of the Great God. So in these verses, we're not talking about the marriage supper anymore. We're now talking about this second supper that's going to occur, and it's very, very different because in this second supper of the Great God, we essentially have the fowls of the earth feasting on the corpses of the dead. So not the same as the marriage feast, uh, undoubtedly. So, but that's what's occurring in uh, verses 17 through 18. And you just need to understand that as you read those verses. Then we come to Revelation 19, verses 19 through 20. This is essentially the spiritual battle of Armageddon by Christ and his armies who consist of his bride. These are the 144,000 servants. They're those who stood with him on Mount Zion, and they collectively will defeat all the disembodied spirit sons of perdition then on earth. This includes uh, the followers of Cain, who is the beast, the followers of Judas, who is the false prophet, and all of these get cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And so that's the, the spiritual battle of Armageddon by Christ and his armies. Now notice that Christ himself treads the winepress to defeat all of the mortal sons of perdition in Revelation 14. He alone treads the winepress here again in Revelation chapter 19, where now the subject is the uh, telestial people. So he's the one destroying all of the physical uh, evil people upon the earth, which is nice for us to know. We, we don't have to be participants in that. You know, you think of these uh, wonderful sisters who were in the temple, uh, the nice, what I call the, the white-haired ladies who help you, who are so loving and helpful in the temple. They're not the ones that are destroying them. And you, you stop and think, could they really do that? <laughs> and so at any rate, uh, the good news is no. You uh, wonderful sisters working in the temples don't have to go out and kill all the bad guys as Armageddon comes to the end, even though you're part of the armies of uh, heaven that follow the Savior as he comes down in his second coming. He alone is the one that will tread the winepress. But when it comes to the defeat of the evil spirits who are sons of perdition, 
including those who are unembodied followers of Satan and the disembodied spirits who are followers of Cain, the beast, and Judas, the false prophet, we will cooperate in that and we will be part of the armies that destroy them and along with Michael and uh, all of these other uh, noble and great spirits that we're familiar with. So that's what's happening in Revelation 19 verses 19 through 20 is the defeat of the disembodied spirit sons of perdition under Cain and under Judas and they get cast into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Then we come down to Revelation 19 21 this is Christ's third appearance of the second coming when he destroys the remnant of all wicked or terrestrial people that are still left in the earth. And this is the final end to physical Armageddon. When we get to Revelation 19.21, uh, he's destroyed all the remaining celestial people and uh, they're wiped off the earth. And then finally, we, we come to Revelation chapter 20. Now, what we end up with in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, is the end of spiritual Armageddon. Technically speaking, these first three verses in Revelation 20 should have been included in chapter 19 because it, this really marks the end of the period of the second coming when we get to the end of spiritual Armageddon. And by that, we're, I mean to say that <clears throat> in these verses, you have the dragon and his unembodied spirits who get bound in the bottomless pit for the thousand years. This is the last event of the second coming, and this is the true end of spiritual Armageddon. So you distinguish this end of spiritual Armageddon, which involves the dragon, from that which happens in verses 19 and 20, uh, when Cain, who is the beast, and Judas, who is the false prophet, their followers get cast into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the difference is the lake of fire is the second death uh, it is outer darkness and so they never return they don't ever get to come back and uh, when Satan gets cast into the bottomless pit they're there for a thousand years and then they're going to come back and do battle during the little season that follows the millennium as described by John in Revelation chapter 20. So that's the end of uh, the uh, chapter 19 and the culmination of all of the events leading up to and including the second coming. And so next week we're going to be talking about chapters 20 and 21, 22 in the book of Revelation to conclude our uh, Come Follow Me discussion of uh, all of the events in the book of Revelation as described by John the Revelator. And I'll look forward to uh, seeing you next week for that final lesson before I begin podcasting at the start of 2024 doing the individual verse podcasts. So we're going to come down from our 30,000 foot elevation and our discussion of details at a very high level and we're going to get down into the nitty-gritty of every single verse in the book of Revelation. I know you're going to be studying the book of Mormon, um, and your attention is going to be uh, directed uh, there to a certain extent, but I hope you'll continue to join me for the podcast that will uh, go on in uh, 2024 as we study the works and the unveiling of Jesus Christ through the visions of John the Revelator. I'll see you next week.